before I go further, uh, introduce myself. Where's my beautiful wife? My wife, Stephanie Schleter, and I are blessed to be parents of seven children, one in heaven. We know many of you. Thank you. I'll take the applause. But although she gets it more than me. She did most of the work. Um, very blessed to have you here. And so um, this movement, what we're about tonight, is called Mass Impact. It's a nonprofit, you might say a, a Catholic revival movement. Um, the word revive, you see vive, live in there, to re-live again. And I'm, I'm going to just say to you candidly, I'm here because as a husband and a father, I need that grace. I want to be a better husband is why I'm here. I want to be a better father. I'm convinced that wherever you're at, and you are welcome, whether you're an atheist, virulent atheist, we love you, we're glad you're here, we hope you are here, all the way to, you know, if some of you start levitating, you know, like Chris Maxson, you know, when he starts levitating, you know, like you got these mystical Catholics going on here too, you'll know it when you see him, we got the people pulling him down in his chair. Um, so anywhere in between, you are welcome here because we share this common thing called humanity. And hopefully tonight we're going to discover more fully what that means. I'll give you one word, I think, that may define what we're about. And what tonight is about is communion. Literally, take the word apart. You see, come, which means with, and union, with unity. It's the deepest desire of the human person. Uh, at the old age of 50 here, um, I can say I don't know much about most of you, but I, I believe that this is probably a truth about all of us. Number one, our deepest desire is to be loved. And two, it's to love. That all of our lives have this DNA, this essence about us. I know that as a husband, as a father, as a worker, that that defines us. We want to be loved and we want to love. And that's the meaning of communion. We yearn for intimacy. And all of our life is a search for deepening that intimacy. It's just this heart conviction that I think we all share and we see play out in so many different ways. So um, communion is the defining word for tonight. You might also see that word in communication. Now, this is a challenge to me as a dad. The measure of communication with unity come unification or with unification. The measure of whether or not we're doing it is the degree to which it's resulting in unity. Come unication. So you see that word there also. Um, so tonight we're going to communicate. And we're going to encourage you to just really be gut honest. How often do you get the opportunity? You see the papers and uh, different channels have, have different political persuasions and religious persuasions. And you often get the sense of, of insistence on one view or you're a jerk or you're a loser and you really can't have a conversation. It's divisive. We think it's important that we foster a platform where we can be real and ask hard questions. So bring your hardball questions. That's what those blank sheets of paper are. And Steph, where is the um, question, infamous question box? You're pointing. This is the question box. So you can certainly just raise your hand and bring it. But the blank sheets of paper at any time uh, with your pen, we invite you to write down your hardball questions. And you can bring them forward or however you want to do that. So you can already begin thinking about that. I'm going to get the commercials out of the way. Um, this little square thing, feel free to take one with you. We call it the Live It app. It's free. It's for Apple devices, it's for Droid devices. I'll just say it's chock full with really awesome stuff. And I'll say the heart of what we're about, if communion isn't spelled out enough, is the heart of what we're about is to talk and pray. We as a family have discovered that the most important thing we do is to talk and pray as a family. And we, we encourage groups to gather to talk and pray. 
Um, it's an adventure, and I know it's hard for us to do that sometimes. We're busy, and we play that card. I'm so busy, and, you know, there's so much going on. And maybe some of us, our kids have grown older, and we're afraid to pull them away from the digital devices. But I will say people are doing that, and they're finding the courage and the strength to do that. And as they're doing that, marriages are being transformed. They're discovering levels they never thought they could be at by talking and praying, setting aside time to talk and pray. We, probably, we provide a live-it gathering guide on a weekly basis corresponding to our Sunday readings. So if you went to this app or you went to our website, massimpact.us, this live-it gathering guide, at the very beginning, the, for groups who've never done it, we call them family fun questions. There are 50 fun questions there. And you'd pick a number, and then you'd ask a fun question. If I had a million dollars, what would I do? Or my favorite movie, or if I could be any character in history. Those kind of fun questions. I'm going to ask you now, and we're going to take a moment for you to go around and introduce yourself. First, you'll say, I am so-and-so. And the fun question that I'm going to ask you tonight is, who is a person who has made, I know there's many, you got to pick one, who is one person who has made a significant difference in your life? All right, how many of you feel sufficiently out of your shells to now direct your questions towards his eminence? I don't see a lot of hands in the air, so we're going to go to another question. Your deepest, darkest secret. Go around. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. So um, I'm going to introduce Father David in a second. But um, So communion is really the heart, intimacy, communion, to become one. It's our deepest desire, and we want a platform, and we can be who we are. Be honest about who we are, receive people as they are, and seek truth. So truth is another word I'll give you for tonight. Communion is possible by the pursuit of truth. We are of the fabric of truth. So three questions tonight that I would say are assumptions. We are Catholic. We're not hiding from that. If you're not, again, it's fine. You ask the questions and bring it. If we will, it's what we call it, bring it. But three things tonight. Um, number one is there is a truth. Number two it can be known, and number three, it can be lived. Those are three fundamental suppositions, foundations that we begin here tonight. We believe there, if we don't believe there's a truth, then there's no point in even talking. We're just jibber-jabbering. So there's got to be a conviction in this room that there is a truth, that it can be known, and we'll take it a step further, that it's possible where it concerns moral things to be lived. Father David Kidd. What can I say about Father David? Father David is, uh, what do we call you, a parochial vicar at St. Rose Parish, wonderful parish. When I asked my kids and others, I said, who is somebody that you think has both a gift of knowing the truth, loving the truth, and a desire and ability to communicate that, top of their list was Father David. So we already did one of these uh, for teenagers, which was received extremely well. And I'll say they set a great example by just the audacity of bringing hard questions. So I'm encouraging you to bring the same. But um, we're very blessed tonight to have Father David with us. So he'll open us up in a prayer, and uh, we will begin. So welcome, and thank you for being here, and Father David. Thank you, Greg. Oh, yeah, that would be great. All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to come to know you, to know the church that you have instituted out of love for us, and to come to know your Son. We come to seek the truth, to know it, and to live it, falling deeper in love with you. Help us all to begin this journey together towards you, towards the truth, to know it and to live it. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to try and answer questions that you have, try to answer them to the best of my ability. If I don't know the answer, we'll just ask Google. <laughs> so first, two questions. One is, what is truth? What's truth? All right, who's Pilate? So truth, we can know it in a number of different ways, right? We think mathematically, right? Two plus two equals four, a concrete, hard truth. Thank you, awesome, another beer. Thank you, Bud Light, it's my pastor's favorite. Father George, thank you. So we know truth concretely, mathematically, two plus two equals four. If we deny that truth, we try to jump, and what happens? We fall back down, right? Gravity, right? So there are certain things we can know and experience, other things, too, we know that are truth, which we call natural law. So, for example, we know to seek the good and to avoid evil. We know to preserve life and not to take it, not because we know the Ten Commandments or even that we know sacred scripture, but because of the natural law, the law that God has written upon our hearts. That, too, is truth, and that, too, can be known through the use of our reason, and that, too, can be lived. Just think what happens if someone takes a shot at you. What do you do? You duck and cover and you run because you're trying to preserve what? Your life, right? Same too, when a mother has her child, what happens? Someone tries to do something to harm the child. What does the mother do? Move to protect the child. That's truth. That is natural law. That's basic to who we are as a human being through our use of reason. And we also come to know and to live that truth in basic circumstances of society. I think most recently we experienced that with Starbucks, right? They've now decided a date where they're going to train 180,000 of their employees to recognize their unconscious bias. But really, it's a matter of coming to love. That's probably what they need, right? It's to know what it means to love. And what does it mean to love? To seek the good of the other person by the fact they're another human being, so too is that a truth, that we can know and we can live it. Truth is also a person, Jesus Christ. We find that in Scripture. So we can have a mathematical truth, 2 plus 2 equals 4. We can have something basic to our humanity, to do good and avoid evil, to preserve life and not to take it. And we also know revealed truths, ways in which God has communicated to us who he is by sacred scripture and tradition. Those are ways in which God has revealed who he is. It's the deposit of faith. It's, again, a revelation of who someone is, Jesus Christ, who is also the truth to whom we are called to follow. Who is anyone to judge? It's a good question. The Holy Father did a wonderful job of pointing that out one of his early months as, as the Roman pontiff. Who are we to judge, right? The measure to which we measure will be measured onto us. We find that in Scripture. How we judge another person, so too will we be judged. Now, we often that gives us pause, right? So am I supposed to judge in general? We do that quite often, right? I had to make a judgment. It takes 13 minutes to get here. I needed to be here by 6.30 because Greg said I need to be here by 6.30. And I made a judgment 
to watch another YouTube video by Bishop Bob Barron. People were asking me, are you prepping for this? And I said, well, I got my hair cut today, and I was going to watch a Bishop Bob Barron video. And uh, so I made a judgment to watch the video, which meant I was going to be two minutes late getting here, right? We do that often when we're making decisions. We have to make judgments based on facts, but sometimes we make ju judgments based on our emotions, right? So there are different ways in which we make judgments. The question is, are we judging rightly? What do we base our judgments upon? Hopefully the truth. And the truth, what, sets us free. So if we're basing it on revealed truth, that is, Jesus Christ, God, Scripture, tradition, we come to experience the freedom that God has for us. The challenge as human beings is to apply that to concrete situations. And that's why we have the great beauty that is the church helping us, informing us, giving us principles to live by, right? We think of social doctrine of the church, right? We think of principles that help us live out what it means to live a joy-filled life. The church helps us and assists us in that, but we still are given the freedom as human beings to apply those principles, making proper judgments with what God has given us. That is the truth. All right, next one. Does the rosary have a biblical background? Or where does that tradition come from? Why do we repeat the same thing so many times? The particular mysteries are from Scripture, right? As we know them from the glorious, right, the sorrowful, the joyful, are particular concrete events in the life of Christ and in the life of Mary. So when we're praying repetitively the Hail Mary, we can focus on those words concretely, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. But we can also think particularly of that specific mystery we're praying. A good example would be the resurrection. We just experienced Easter, the first glorious mystery. So we focus on the rosary on that particular first mystery. And that helps us enter into a state of prayer. As you are a human being just like myself, so often we will get distracted in our prayer. We start thinking about tax day, and oh, I didn't get my taxes in. No, I did get my taxes in. But we think of all those things, right? Did I mention that on my tax form on the question? Right? Like, all of a sudden, these, these things start popping into our mind. Did I, my, did I pick up my kid? Did I send that email off I was supposed to? All those things start to pop in. The purpose, then, of the repetitive prayer is to get us back to that general focus, right, on that mystery we were trying to meditate on. How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, there's a number of things you can look at, right? A number of signs, right? Signs, meaning not sure proof, but they point to the resurrection, one of them being the empty tomb. You had the, the boulder that was rolled across that tomb to close, concealed the tomb, and then it was rolled away. You have the garments, both of the body and of the face that were cast aside. And it's mentioned, too, was it's almost as if they were over the person, covered the person, and then were lifted up and then brought back down. Were these Roman guards or Jewish guards? Some say, well, what's the difference? What's unique is, why would they be telling 
a lie if they went and told them we don't know where they put him if they were tasked with defending protecting the actual tomb and why then were they paid off another thing to keep in mind about the resurrection is if you're really gonna sell the resurrection who in the right mind at that time and place because testimony was first really trusted by men not by women and who's the first to appear but a woman Mary Magdalene right and goes to the tomb she's the first one then then that goes back to the apostles we're thinking if this is such um, a way in which we want to really sell this you wouldn't really start with a woman but they do God does God reveals himself to a woman first so it reveals to us this isn't like a concocted story but something again unique to the experience of Christ again these are signs right it doesn't point to a sure presumed fact what happens then with these signs we put them together and for 2,000 years now 1.1 billion people believe that this man who died three days later rose from the dead they believe that so as we make judgments we assemble the facts but we also insert the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ and that is we come to know who he is by how he's revealed himself in Scripture and with the help of the church we come to know Christ and to know the reality of both his passion his death and his resurrection we trust the testimony of those that were there believers but we also have testimony from multiple sources who were not Christians who attest to the facts in the life of Christ at that time or shortly thereafter about four or five different sources pointing to that so concretely we point together these signs and then we have to make what an act of faith we do which we use both our intellect and our heart to make that choice to make that judgment and we rely that on the testimony of those that were there before us just as we would by the way if someone told us it snowed in Chicago it snowed in Chicago and I wasn't in Chicago I was in Perrysburg I didn't see the footage but someone told me that it happened why I wasn't there I had to trust what they told me was true so the word on the street was based on what they sold or they paid off the guards to say his body was taken right someone else did this this wasn't this resurrection they claimed to someone else the problem was they couldn't find the body right they couldn't find the body where's the body at except that he reveals himself later a resurrected body with still the wounds so the word on the street was this was made up fabricated by these these people that supposedly claim to follow Christ um, but to go to your point too you're trusting though in those sources right so even when we look back to the snow we're trusting the sources of those that were there and the question always becomes with someone when we ask about the sources how do we trust those sources if God is the light why do priests wear black that's true <laughs> so true it's a good question well I wear I wear white and gold for Easter season so 
black was a color, a couple of things. One is black was used as a color to signify death to this world. This person doesn't live, is not a person who lives for this world. A person who fades into the background, but hopefully the light of Christ exudes forth from the priest. The collar itself is, was used as a way, first, as wraps that were wrapped around the throat of a preacher. So they would know someone who was coming in to preach about this Christ who suffered, died, and rose from the dead because their voice would be hoarse after often preaching. And so they would wrap their, their, their throats in white garments that had been soaked in, a, in like a, a, a balm. And so they would be able to identify those particular uh, preachers by that white collar around. But the black specifically, it's that the focus would not be on them, that they would personally fade into the background, and what would come forth is the light of Christ. Why is the church allowing the Pontifical Academy for Life to advocate the use of artificial contraception in cases where natural methods are impossible or in unfeasible? That's a good question. I have no idea. That's a great question. I mean, part of it, and I think what's good about that question, that's serious, good question is we, when, we ask, when we're asking these things, it's like we notice certain things that don't quite line up with what we know to be true. And so the question then arises, why is something being said that seems to be contrary to what is being articulated that is to be true, the preservation of life, promotion of life? We don't want to inhibit life from taking place, therefore artificial contraception being used. That's why we argue for natural family planning. This was to college students. They asked them, what was the purpose of sex? And like nine times out of 10, you asked the students and they would say, pleasure. But if you started the question first with, what is the purpose of your eyes to see? What is the purpose of your ears to hear? What's the purpose of your nose to smell? And you did this for all the different parts of the body. And then you said, what's the purpose of sex? Guess what they said? Procreation. When we think of the purpose of sex, the purpose of sex is to procreate. Oh, and by the way, it is pleasurable, right? Like God knew what he was doing, right? I tell us a couple is preparing for marriage. You know, it's like the church loves sex, by the way, within marriage, right? Because we know the purpose for it, to give life. We like, that's good. It's a good thing. And the covenantal bond, the covenantal bond is renewed with that gift of the marital act, of the sexual act, every time for the couple. What they professed in their love for one another, it's renewed every time they come as husband and wife and have sex. So when we think of sex itself, right, it's both unitive, meaning it brings the husband and wife together, one flesh, but also what? That it's procreative, that it's meant to give life. Brings the couple together and gives life. Those two cannot be separated. So when we think of things like artificial contraception or we think of IUDs or we think of 
all different ways in which we can artificially inhibit conception from taking place. It separates the unitive from the procreative. It's no longer procreative, the sexual act then. Yes, the two come together, but it's then no longer a place in which we're open to life. Right? God is not invited here. We think of couples that are trying to conceive, and they use IVF, right? And it's the same thing in the sense that how is that egg and sperm brought together? Not through the sexual act. The husband and wife are not brought together physically, nor is it then brought with that same idea of giving life. It's joined through the egg and the sperm outside of the couple, and with the idea then too, how do we obtain the sperm? How do we obtain the eggs? The things contrary to which God has invited us to with the gift of our bodies. So in each of those, when we separate the unitive from the procreative aspects, joining the husband and wife together with the purpose of giving life, when we separate those, we're truly misusing what God has given us to do with that gift of our human sexuality, to give life. That's great. Yeah, so we're celebrating, what, 50 years of Humana Vitae. So human life. That was a document written by Pope, now blessed, Paul VI. Um, and it was at a time and place where he was having, just like we had in the previous uh, last couple years, synods, right? So he, sele- he gathered input from the bishops of the church um, on particular things about giving life, uniquely about artificial contraception, the main thrust of it. And it was something quite remarkable and quite courageous. A number of the bishops at that time were, it were, not in, were really in support of and could find valid reasons why artificial contraception could be used. And Paul VI had really examined this, and he had sought a lot of input, including from a future Holy Father by the name of Carol Watiwa, Pope St. John Paul II. And what his courageous document really showed was the dangers if we start to separate the unitive from the procreative. We start to, as a church, say artificial contraception is okay. Meaning the person to which we're supposed to love till death do us part, in good times and bad, till sickness and health, becomes a sexual object. Because uses someone just for our own pleasure. And he says, look at how then the breakdown, not only of the family, which he talked about and foreshadowed, but also how we would treat human beings in general. We start, he said, we would start to use them as commodities, as, as objects for our own possession. And we lose insight of the human being, the purpose of the human being, which is to love as God loves, right? Sacrificial, sacrificial, sacrificially, selflessly for other people. And so for a husband and wife, when they start to employ those methods of artificial contraception, they begin to separate that physical union from the giving life, and they begin to start having resentment towards one another. This one wants children. This one doesn't. 
well, I have to then use this in order to not have children. And then my desires are done solely through the use of my spouse so that I am physically satisfied. And those things, Pope St. John, Pope uh, Blessed Paul VI, pointed out in Humanae Vitae time and time again and only reinforced that breakdown of the family, which we see kind of play out. And I think, you know, just through lived experience, we see that play out. And, and it's something we saw coming, unfortunately, right? You see this coming. It's like, the, it's like the train wreck, right? You see the train wreck coming. There's nothing, you know, it's like you're watching this take place. And, and that's something where Paul VI was courageous in saying, and for us 50 years later, to still take up and try to live out and encourage our family members, our children, grandchildren, to live out as well. And unfortunately, like with all of us human beings, right, we learn through our own suffering, right? And that seems to be too kind of as a society, that's how we're learning the truths to which Paul VI had shared. Um, as a married guy, some quick thoughts. Um, we who are married and are Catholic don't desire our wives any less than those who contracept. Agreed? Anybody? Raise your hand, right? I mean, we're, we're not alien creatures in terms of our sexual desire. We face the same truth of the church, and therein is an opportunity for heroism. Therein is an opportunity to recognize that there are other ways of... We really can't give what we don't own, what we don't possess. So a simple idea is, is the opportunities when we're practicing NFP, because we've prayerfully considered what... Paul VI has laid out, and we understand that there's circumstances where we don't want to conceive. We cooperate with nature. We cooperate with God's design. You alluded to that, which, by the way, is 99% effective by those who practice it. I'll also add that statistically, those who practice NFP, uh, there's uh, only 1% divorce compared to those who contracept, which is, I don't know what the stat is, but it's much, much higher. Why? Because it's cultivating virtue that my wife doesn't become, as you said, an object uh, and lust. I've heard so many brothers in Christ, even good brothers who are practicing NFP or whatever. It is a key struggle for men and women, I'll say for men. But this is an occasion to say, you know, I have an opportunity here to exercise self-mastery and self-control that allows me to truly give myself away, to, to love my wife not just for... 5% of our bodies, or for this gratification. But at the heart, it's a chance to love my wife for who she is. And I will say, as Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, speaks of the heart of love, this is the greatest challenge for men, but I'm just going to say, as I'm 50 now, the heart of love is empathy. It's that capacity to be attuned to my wife's emotional, spiritual, relational world, and to care for it selflessly, regardless of what I get or don't get. So there's a great gift in that season of self-control uh, when you are choosing NFP. That is only a blessing. It's a challenge, no doubt about it. It is a struggle. It is a challenge. But it's a great witness and a great uh, testimony. So um, just want to add that as a married guy. And I'd say for those of you who are wanting to explore this, you can ask me about it later. But if you want to hear some brothers in Christ, you don't even ask here. How many of you have ever taught or shared anything about NFP uh, as men, just raise your hand as men. If you've ever talked about it or, or shared, a bunch of you guys have. Look at these guys with hands. They'll tell you and they'll keep it very real 
of how you can be encouraged and supported. Bottom line is it will dramatically improve the intimacy in your marriage and in your family. Thanks, Greg. What we want to do, though, is create a culture, and this is through this purity, of seeking the good of the other person. That's love, right? Seeking the good of the other person. And am I showing respect to the most holiest things that I possess? Those things that are most holy, we cover, right? We cover those. It's good modesty. And through that, a good living out of our purity, maintaining our purity. That to which is most sacred and most holy, we cover. We just think of that, too, with the tabernacle, right? We think of the chalice veil. Those things that are most holy, we conceal. We cover, not because they're bad, not because they're awful, not because they're dirty, but because they're so good, they're so holy, that we want to maintain that concealment. So, too, with our bodies. Does celibacy work? Yes, we think of, we have the gospel reading today about the um, eunuch, right? And Christ, in another account, talks about, this wasn't the gospel, that was the Acts of the Apostles. But Christ in the gospels talks about those that are eunuchs, meaning, A, they've been castrated, right? B, that they are born in such a way. Or, third, that they so chose that to point to the kingdom of God. Celibacy, literally, right, to be unwedded and to not have children, is coupled with also with purity, with chastity. So the call for purity is, is just as much as real for the priest as it is for the couple, as it is for the single man, the single woman. That purity helps us maintain that to which we've been born for, love. True, proper, holy, pure love for and desiring the other person and the good of the other person. How can we be selfless? I think if we wake up each and every day with how can I help my spouse, how can I help my children, rather than when am I going to get a break? right? I mean, we're human. We think that, right? I was thinking that this morning. I'm like, so when am I going to get my nap in, right? Right? One way. I didn't get a nap in. So if we think first and foremost of others, we're going to start to cultivate that sense of being selfless. When we think of others before ourselves. That begins with prayer. As we wake up, I always talk to our kids. I've been meeting with our fifth, fifth through eighth graders, every one of them in the fall, and I want to meet with them again before they head out to go over their goals. And one of them they always talk about is prayer, more prayer. I want to pray more. And I said, well, you guys are praying all the time. At school, before meals, before class, after class, you're praying with me. We're going to mass, going to confession, all these great things we're doing. And so I said, well, when can you pray more? I was like, well, at home. Oh, okay. That's good. That's good. So I said, okay, well, how about right when you get up in the morning? Drop to your knees. And who do we think of first? God. We think of God. We ask God for the strength to live out and do the best we can with what God has given us. To love as he so loves. Say a couple Hail Marys. Pray for your parents. And get up there and go to school. Start with prayer. 
And that helps us think not of ourselves, but of God and others. Indulgences, what are they and why? Good question. Good question. So, we just got off the year of mercy. That's about two years ago now. We just got off of Divine Mercy Sunday. We thought of these great opportunities to have indulgences, to receive indulgences. I'm still looking. I have this, there's this book all on indulgences, and I'm still looking for them on beer. When you drink a beer, there's an indulgence associated with that. We don't pay for them. Contrary to Protestant opinion, we do not pay for them, right? So why, what are they and for what purpose are they for? What does the church ask us to do in order to obtain an indulgence? An indulgence is, itself is, is a removal of the temporal punishment due to sin, right? The church asks us in order to obtain an indulgence to be free of the temporal punishment due to sin is to go to confession, to go to Mass, receive Holy Communion, and to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, our Father, Hail Mary, and the glory be. We think when we go to confession, we're like, okay, I've, I've got my sins all wiped away, which is true, right? It's a good thing. But we also realize that there are still consequences, consequences for that sin. A good example of that is we break a window, right? Go to Mr. Hertzfeld because I broke a window. I go to him and I say, I'm so sorry. Broke your window. And he says, I forgive you. Don't worry. No sweat. The problem is what? The window's still broken, right? So too with our, the effects of our sin, right? God has forgiven us, but there's still consequences for those sins that play out in our lives. And even that, that punishment to which we are due temporally here on earth is wiped away. It's remarkable. It's a great gift. It's a great act of mercy that the church provides for us. We think of that line in Scripture, right? Whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. It's the strings of mercy being opened up by the church for the people of God, for you and me. And so I always, you know, encourage people, you know, when you have someone who's dying, family member, friend, complete stranger, they're Catholic, get them anointed and ask for the apostolic pardon. Why is that so important? Because you're wiping away sin and the temporal punishment due to sin. That's why they receive Holy Communion, Viaticum, right? Their, Viaticum is their last reception of Holy Communion coupled with the sacrament of confession. They are receiving an indulgence at that point. It's amazing. It's like the ticket to heaven written right there. Awesome. Like, take advantage of that. Really encourage people to do that. Okay, so we've got purgatory. So that means we're striving. Well, that's, we're striving towards the goodness of God. We've been baptized, God willing. We see the sacraments. And we realize, though, we've still got, if we die, and there's still sin on us, on our soul, you know, that has to be purified. Purgatory is not a negative. I think often we think like, oh my gosh, it's terrible. No, purgatory means we're on the pathway to heaven. However, we need the prayers of who? Those still living to pray for those who have died, right? May they rest in peace, R.I.P., Requiem in Pace, right? We see that, Requiem in Pace. It's, we say it always on the graves, 
our role here on earth is to pray for those who have died so that they may obtain the heights of heaven, so that whatever separates them, ultimately sin, from God can be removed. Because in order to be with God, we got to be like him, right? So we want to be totally free of the sin that is on, still in our hearts, on our souls, when, if, if that's still in our souls when we die. So the purpose of that, then, is we are to pray for those who have died so that they can obtain the heights of heaven. So saying masses for them, praying rosaries for them, are all good things that we should do for those who have passed away. Passing on an indulgence, great gift to someone who's passed away. So I've done all these things. I've gone to confession. I've gone holy mass, received holy communion, prayed for the intention of the Holy Father. And now I say, I'm going to give this indulgence to a family member who's passed away. Write that ticket for him to heaven. God invites us at that point to be participants in the salvation of the world. He's inviting us to that. And we think, gosh, what's my purpose? My kids are growing up. I got all those things. I gotta... God is asking for us to help people get to heaven. He's inviting us to participate in that. Every time we go to Mass, every time we go to confession, every time we pray, help those souls in purgatory to get to heaven. Great follow-up. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the reality is we're human beings, right? We get baptized, and what happens? I walk out of this... <laughs> I hit my head, and what do I say? Darn it. I don't say darn it, I say something else, right? Or all of a sudden, you know, your spouse yells at you, and you yell back, right? And so the, the f- idea that we can just be reborn in Christ, and then it covers anything we do after that, is not what Christ taught. That we need to continually seek after him. That we continually need to seek and take up our cross, that we continually need to seek and ask forgiveness, knowing we need his help. And the, re- the reality is that, that sin keeps us from that, and that's why we need to continue to confess and ask for his help. One gentleman said, I, that's why I married my wife. <laughs> to help me, right? We need help. We need help. And And in a real way, we're, we're doing that through the, by the grace of God and the celebration of the sacraments to help us on our way, but realizing we need help. We need a community of people called the church, family of love, communion of love, to help us do that. We don't do this alone. We don't do this alone. We do this with the help of the church. Can you discuss exorcisms from minor to serious cases where Satan fully takes control of the other person? Is that we see in movies such as The Right possible to happen? It's a good question. The Right is based on a book, and the book is fantastic um, because it's based on a true story and uh, based on a priest out in California. The Right takes a number of liberties, one of which is that the main character the younger guy studying to become a priest is not even a priest at that point, which would not happen. We don't, we don't learn about how to perform exorcisms as a seminarian. It comes later as a priest. Um, discuss difference. So minor exorcisms are performed where? Baptisms, right? Baptism, yeah, baptisms. Sometimes in classrooms with teachers, but mostly <laughs> happening at baptism. 
and it was beautiful. I celebrated my first um, baptism in the extraordinary form in Latin just a few weeks ago for a couple, for their child. And it was beautiful because of the particular prayers that are said, the minor exorcisms, which are also done in the right in English as well. And those particular prayers are a cleansing of the child. And you're looking at this beautiful child, and you're like, how could they ever have done anything evil? And you're right. But we do realize how evil works, often subtly, often when we don't even realize it, and most powerfully when we think it doesn't even exist. Right? So we do that with objects. We do that with things. That's why we bless things. That's why we bless babies and children and couples and marriages. And so all of that is a purification to maintain that which exists as good. Anything that exists is good by its nature. It's good. But exorcisms help us purify that if there's any attachments of evil to it, whether voluntary or involuntary. So there's a number of different ways in which we talk about possession, right? So we can talk about um, infestation, which are like particular places associated with things, but ultimately rooted in people, right? So let's say there's a challenge at a house, particular problems at a house where things are happening, changing the temperature in a room may just be because you turned down the dial, your wife, you didn't tell your wife that. <laughs> but there are some things you can't actually explain, right? Um, things that move around, right? We think of, I'm not trying to scare anyone, I'm just, things that, like, infestations. Um, and so if that, God forbid, ever happens, just call a priest, he'll come and bless your house, celebrate Mass there if you need to. Um, we think of... Um, we think of diabolic um, obsession, which things are starting to happen to a particular person. So thoughts, ideas, we start getting, whether it's dreams, all these different things. You guys are going to go to bed and you're going to have nightmares now, but just like certain attacks on the person itself. That can come from a number of reasons. When we open ourselves up to the demonic, Sometimes those things will happen. Often they'll happen. Examples of opening ourselves up to the demonic without giving too many creative ideas is, you know, things that we know when we read a examination of conscience. Don't play with the weight Ouija boards. Don't be going to yoga. Don't be uh, inviting friends over to do a seance. All those stupid things. Don't do those. It's like playing with fire. What happens when you play with fire? You get burned. Don't play with fire because you're going to get burned. In and of themselves, we think like, oh my gosh, yoga. I've been doing yoga right now. I've been doing it the last three years, right? No, don't, yeah. Even when our intentions are, I just want to get a good exercise, you're going to be coming to my office five years later or four years later, and you're going to be saying, I'm starting to have these dreams, and I'm, these are my dreams, and then I'm having problems, um, and I feel like someone's trying to take control of me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just don't do that stuff. First and foremost. And then there's a jump. There's a jump that takes place. And this is the most severe. We would talk about possession, right? In those cases, those are, those are particularly people are inviting evil into their lives in very concrete ways. And I'm not going to go into those things. But it is real. Evil is real. And those things do happen. They are very rare. But the most important, I think, thing we need to realize is this power of the sacraments of confession, Holy Communion, are far more powerful than any exorcism rite. Why? Because an exorcism rite is what? 
a sacramental. What else is a sacramental? Holy water, crucifix, rosary. The sacraments have far greater power. So, if I, you know, if things pop up, go to the sacraments first and foremost and get your house blessed. That's what I would say initially. Follow up, follow up. There's a couple subtle things that we may not realize. You may just think, I'm going to exercise, and I think it's a good thing, and I get my breathing. And There's a number of different good Catholic alternatives to that, and I can send you an article on that um, as far as exercise. Uh, yeah, Reiki and yoga, I would not encourage. Yoga is particular positions that are of pagan religions of the Eastern um, type, so like Indian and Asian religions um, that are not Christian, not rooted in Christianity. And frankly, they're just better. There are other alternatives to that. Um, and I think often when when we are seeking that, we're also seeking a, an internal peace that can come through good, solid prayer. Praying with liturgy hours, praying the rosary, meditative time of silence in front of the Blessed Sacrament, um, and exercise. You know, I'm a big fan of going to Planet Fitness. So I encourage that. So, but not that I'm endorsing it, but, you know, group sessions of exercise are great. You know, this not, those aren't bad things. But in my professional opinion as a priest, I, and just because people have come to my office and have, have said they've done these things, and then there are, there are issues that they need to work on, because, like spiritual issues that take place as a direct result from that. And so that's why I, I do not encourage people at all to, to go to either of those things. Good follow-up, good follow-up. What do you think is the greatest challenge to families today? Advice. Yeah, I might need another beer. I say this, you know, it's, you know, I say this with, uh, my, my niece just got, was just born. She's eight pounds, five ounces. She's 20 inches and a half. But I think for families, sometimes our children can be our, our biggest blessing and our biggest challenge. Why is that? Well, I think part of it is we want only the good for them. But we often confuse what they perceive as the good and our desire to keep the peace. And our, often our desire to keep the peace overrides what is really good for them. I think we've all experienced that in different ways, right? Just play this play this video game and you'll be quiet, right? Or they really don't want to come to Mass, so, you know, because they'll throw a fit, or, you know, and it's like, so we just don't do it, you know? And so we have to be willing, God willing, as strong parents to say, God has given me this responsibility as a mom and a dad and to not be afraid to be mom and dad. You're... We think of our children, and our children have awesome friends. I think all the kids in our school, I'm a dad to 500 kids. And they have awesome friends. But the last thing they need is mom and dad trying to be their friend. They need mom and dad to be mom and dad. And you know what? They love you for it when, you, when you're mom and dad, when you challenge them, when you're consistent time and time again. You're right. You told me on Friday it was bad, and you told me on Monday it was bad, and you told me on Wednesday it was bad. And now it's starting to sink in, right, when we're consistent in that. But they know that because you operate out of a sense of love for them. And with that is, 
when we tell them not to do something because it's not good for them, we can explain why. Not because I'm mom and dad, but because of X, Y, and Z for this reason and that. Then they know we're not just doing this to exert our authority. We're doing it because we're seeking the best for them. So I think in, our, in a real way, our children are our greatest blessing and our greatest challenge. And, and I think to encourage mom and dads and grandparents to continue to be moms and dads and grandparents for your children, that will be the greatest source of joy for those children. Why do Catholics believe they are really receiving Jesus at church? Well, because we are. John 6, right? God. John 6. What does John 6 say? This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Who's me? Me? Jesus. He was serious. And he was so serious that what happened? Many people refused. I was talking to kids about this. I said, you know, often we think if Jesus Christ showed up, I would write it here right on the spot. I would do what he says. And you know what? He did that for people 2,000 years ago, and they didn't do what he said. Right? God, we receive Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, his real presence, his body, blood, soul, and divinity under the species of bread and wine. What looks like bread and wine in reality through the prayers that the priest says that are the words of Jesus Christ, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We also receive him in what? His word. Word and sacrament. Liturgy of the word and liturgy of the Eucharist. We receive him in his word, and we take him at his word with the Eucharist. If so, why are so many I know so uncomfortable about talking of Jesus? It's because we're Catholics. We don't really do that. Right? We're not very good at it, right? We're not good at that. But we can do a lot better job. How do we best proclaim him? Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said this time and time again. How do we proclaim him? What are the best ways, two best ways we can proclaim Christ? The way we live our lives and the beauty of the church. So the saints and their example. Right? As we read our Holy Father's most recent document, the saints next door. Those examples of holiness we see day in and day out lived by moms and dads, single men, single women, God willing by the priests, their deacons. The witness of people is compelling. I want what they have. Right? We think of the distorted image of that when Harry met Sally, right? I want what she's having. But we're so moved with Jesus Christ. Like, people will follow us. They'll do what, we, what we're doing because our witness is filled with the love and joy of God. And the beauty, no better example of that than this beautiful church here. Why did we do a beautiful renovation here? Because beauty draws us in, right? It's the same reason why a beautiful woman walks by, a handsome man walks by, and your head turns. Beauty attracts. God made it so. He made it that way. 
We, why do we pray better when we're in a beautiful church? Objectively, we just objectively say that's a beautiful church because it reminds us of who we're in front of, God. So last end appeal, if you thought tonight was a good thing, if you enjoy being in an atmosphere where you are loved and welcomed and encouraged and you can ask questions, point two, um, we just invite you to partner with us. We're a nonprofit. We're full-time in this ministry, my wife and I and our children, and we've got a team. We're a nonprofit organization. We've got a board. And uh, we have big visions, by the way. Um, the church is the source and the summit, the Eucharist. But we have come to a point where we realize and we're blessed now to be thinking about actually building a retreat center, a facility where men and women can be formed and encouraged and families can gather because our home can't hold more than 80 and our floors are creaking already and we've been doing this for four years. So we're blessed that some people believe in that enough. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I n never knew how this full-time ministry would happen either. It's that kind of place that you'll be able to say to a friend, hey, you may not take them to church, although that's a good thing, but an intermediate place. Come and experience these families that just love God and love each other and are on a journey together. That's what this place is all about. If that moves you and you want to join with us, this, it wouldn't come to me. It goes to the organization. It's a movement. Nobody owns it. We as Catholics own a nonprofit. We're part of that. I just invite you to even just take one of these up here and maybe even just take home and take it home and pray about it. That's all I'm going to say about joining us uh, and just very grateful for that. Father, if you close us with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, good and gracious God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your name, and again, to seek the truth, to know the truth, and to live it out, as revealed by your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he instituted in Holy Mother Church. May you keep us close to the sacred heart of your Son, and continue to inspire us to live out the paschal joy that is the resurrection of our Lord. Through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.